All right, you guys, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 today. I think we're going to hit about 10 verses and uh, lightens it up a little bit from what we've been in, but uh, some interesting stuff. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Sing the word of God set to music. Sit in silence for a minute and come back and get into our verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Lord, we uh, pause and thank you for the meeting, being able to meet together freely in this place and uh, have the wherewithal and liberty to do so. We're grateful for your word that we can study it and talk about it. And as it washes us and it renews our minds and helps us to understand you and your son better, we pray that you will inspire us uh, with understanding that is beneficial to our Christian walk. And uh, be with us now as we consider these, uh, some of these words set to music. In Jesus' name, amen. One, 
two, three, four. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Okay, one of the main differences that we have between milk and meat, uh, well, one difference is the book we study. People ask, what's the difference between milk and meat? And the main thing is the book we study. Second Corinthians is not an easy book. In fact, I found it one of the more difficult books. Today's easy, but um, difficult. Romans, not an easy book in many ways. Of course, Revelation... We started out with 30 people. There's two of you left. So uh, these are not easy books. That makes it meatier, and so the heavier. But the other difference is at Milk, we're talking about the fundamentals of the faith. We're talking about being spiritually reborn, and um, we're and about 
accepting Jesus and his thoughts and what he taught and the, the milk of the word. Because you, we're babes in Christ in, in, in milk and we're, we're being nurtured by the milk and growing up. But in meat, it's more about the Christian walk. It's about what it means to be a Christian who's been saved by grace through faith. That's settled and done. And like Hebrews chapter 6, 1 through 3 says, Now let's go on leaving behind, having built the foundation on faith in Christ, repentance from dead works and all that stuff. Let's leave that behind and go on to completeness. And so at, at Meet, we talk a lot about completion, walking in the fulfillment of what it means to be a Christian. And it can sound more legalistic. It can sound more what's on us as Christians uh, more than it talks about what's on Christ. But it's all through Christ. Understand that. Well, today we're going to enter into some things that another human, and when I say that, I mean in contradistinction to Jesus who was both human and God in him, we are talking about non-Christ figures living the Christian walk. And we're going to have the example of Paul who was just like we are, and yet he describes what he went through in his ministry. So in some ways we can relate very well to what he went through, perhaps even more than what Christ went through, because Christ had the fullness of the Godhead in him from birth. So it's not that any way, shape, or form that Paul's some sort of deity. He's not, but he's a brother. He's a brother, and as a brother we can look at what he says and say, okay, if he could do that, I can do that. Most of us can't walk on water. Most of us can't do the things Jesus did. Uh, none of us can. But he was able to take what Jesus did for him and then apply it to his life as a, an apostle and a believer. So we remember a couple things about our study in 2 Corinthians as we enter into chapter 6 today. And one is Paul seemed to use a good deal of the content of 2 Corinthians to justify himself as an apostle. He has been, uh, <clears throat> there appears to be people in Corinth who are constantly criticizing his apostleship. And that comes out in 1 Corinthians and it's come out more in 2 Corinthians. And as a result, scholars generally agree that 2 Corinthians is the best book in the New Testament that to give us personal insights into the life of Paul. He reveals more of himself in 2 Corinthians than he does in the other epistles. And we will find this especially true in the first 10 verses of our chapter today. So we're going to read them together and let's see what Paul has to say uh, about them then, to them then, and the principles that then apply to us. So before we begin, I want to point out yet again, we do this quite a bit in this, chap in this book, that the very first word of chapter 6 is we. It's we. And it refers to Paul and the other apostles. Understand that so you have good contextual grounding on this. Just because you're a Christian today and you pick up 2 Corinthians and you open to chapter 6 and you look at the first verse and it says we, uh, make sure that you don't assume that that means you because it doesn't. Now, does it have application to us? Sure. 
But he is speaking primarily of himself as an apostle. So let's pick it up. Chapter 6, verse 1. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For, he said, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. But in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by longsuffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the word of God, excuse me, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. So we have insight into Paul, into his life, who he was as a witness. So go back to verse 1 with me of, of 2 Corinthians 6. We then, he says, as laborers together with God, as joint laborers with God is what that means. Laborers together, the better Greek is as joint laborers with God. Paul is calling himself as an apostle. He says, we beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Okay, so we have to ask ourselves some questions. Are One, are we joint laborers with God in anything as we read that passage? Does it apply to us, even though Paul's talking about himself as an apostle here? And do we listen to his beseechment that we don't receive the grace of God in vain? That that means that that we didn't receive the grace of God without it bearing any kind of goodness in us, right? So the word translators, worker together, better means co-laborers, co-laborers with God. And of course, that's what the apostles were. I would suggest that applies to us too. I think in our lives, we are co-laborers with God. I don't believe he has the complete overwhelming of us and our free will. And I certainly don't believe that we step in and we tell him what to do, right? Um, think about the job that we have as parents, especially if you're Christian parents, okay? And, and as a Christian parent, we labor, don't we? You know, we keep a house and we do the, our, our wives do the laundry, or someone does the laundry. I got to get, I, last week Rex warned me against any sort of, of my illustrations. Avoid them, they're bad, they are. <laughs> so, we keep the house, the laundry's done, the meals are made, the mortgage or the rent is paid, the uh, gas is in the cars, we drive our kids to school, we invest time in their well-being. All those things, those are labors we are doing as parents, okay? Uh, but in the Christian home, a parent readily recognizes 
that we are in partnership with God in raising those children. Now, maybe in a secular, non-theist, deist home, uh, God doesn't play a role at any of it. So the parents believe it's all them or whatever. But in a Christian home, we know we're co-laborers raising those kids up. And that while we're providing for their immediate needs, and you know we realize God is the one who enables and allows us to perform such tasks, and that we, while we may provide provision for the family and guidance and things for their immediate needs, we also realize that it's God who protects them. We can teach them to drive in the parking lots when they're 14 and 15, but when they get the license and they go out on the road, it's like, it's in your hands, right? So it's a joint labor in raising up our own children. If you have children, you might understand that. Um, but we trust that he fills in the gaps and he provides the, all the supports necessary so we can help raise them and have the jobs and do the things, right? So if this is the case as parents, Christian parents, it's certainly the case with the apostles that are working it in harmony with God in the early church. And Paul opens up with this chapter, as it were, with this fact, we then as workers together with him, as joint laborers with God, we beseech you, believers at Corinth, we beseech you, we are reaching to you, we are asking you to seriously consider that you receive not the grace of God in vain. So that's kind of the thesis statement, the theme statement of chapter 6. We as apostles don't want you to receive the grace of God in vain. That last line in verse 1 is a continuation of the thought he gave us in chapter 5. And while Christ has taken the whole world into death, and God who was in him reconciled the world to himself, he did this so that we, believers, who rise up with him in life, might be made the righteousness of God in him. That means we're producing fruit. So, we, so Paul says, I hope, I beseech you that you have not received the grace of God in vain. We don't want you to just be a branch, a stick. We want you to be a flourishing stick with the fruit that God wants to bring out of us as his children. Be a, and if you are just a branch, that has had the sins cleared away, but no fruit, you know, you're not really providing anything. We want the grace of God given to you to turn into fruit, which is the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, and all those things. So we beseech you, believers at Corinth, and, and, and reader today, that you received not the grace of God in vain, right? The implication here, even though you probably expect this from me, is that there, you can receive the grace of God in vain, if Paul beseeches us that we didn't receive it in vain, it tells me that you can receive the grace of God and it can be in vain. That's what he says there. That's why the beseechment. So this is the implication of the parable of the sower. And it's the implication of the parable of the vine and the branch. It's the implication of the parable of the talents that Jesus gives and the direct warning of the apostles all the time. So again, that you receive not the grace of God in vain implies that people can receive the grace of God and all they are 
is they've received a forgiveness for their sin and they know Jesus is their savior and they're so happy he came and died for them and they lay dormant in the grave and they have received it in vain, never producing the fruit of love and of the spirit that God wants. So God has reconciled the world to himself. When you come to realize and hear this good news and realize that by and through Christ Jesus, God has done this. Uh, Paul then in verse chapter five says, now reconcile yourself to God. Now put yourself in the place where God can use you. He's reconciled the world to himself. Now reconcile yourself to him. And... Uh, do his will, not your own. This is the meaty thing that we've stepped into now from the milk of the morning. Now we step into what does Christianity look like in the way the apostles describe it to them then. In doing so, as a new creature of Christ, we will have received the grace of God not in vain, but will produce those fruits of righteousness through being living sacrifices. That's the phrase Paul uses. We are walking around offering living sacrifices to God. We, had read, we just sang one that Mallory put to music. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a humble and a contrite heart. That is fruit of someone who is raised up to life in Christ and is living in him as the vine. Okay? a broken spirit and a humble and contrite heart. And uh, in doing so, you're being reconciled to God and you're letting his grace flow through the vine to you, the branch, and you begin to bud and to produce those things that are necessary for grapes. And so at this point, Paul does something that he does several times in his epistles. In fact, Peter does it too. I don't know if you knew this, uh, but the apostles were very... Uh, not very, but they were accustomed to taking passages from the Old Testament, stripping them out of the context that they were used for in the Old Testament completely, and using them for their advantage of what they were teaching then. It happens frequently. And this is a, this is a case, because what he's going to cite here, and the way he uses it, there are ties, but there's not a straight across he uses it in the exact same way it was used there in the Old Testament. And I think that says something remarkable about the Spirit. You know, we like to have every leg of the chair, all four on the ground, because we like that certainty. But with the Spirit, they were able to say, hmm, I like the sound of this passage. It works for what I need here. I'll use it. And there's several instances where it is. Well, this one, it's Isaiah 49, 8. And Paul, he cites, Isaiah 49, 8 says, Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth to cause, the, to, cause to inherit the desolate heritages. Now, that is a messianic prophecy that Isaiah gives about God speaking of his Messiah. And that's what he says, in that day I have heard thee and I will do this and this and this and this. So um, God would show favor is the overall message of that passage, right? He would show favor uh, to, he would hear the prayers of him who was his and 
He would make him the medium and establishing, that's a bad word, but he'd make him the mediator and establishing a better covenant with his people that would spread the good news around the earth. That's the context of Isaiah. That's what it meant then. Paul quotes the passage here, but he doesn't use it in the exact same sense or with reference to the exact same design for which it was originally spoken, but as expressing the idea that in accordance with this general principle that Isaiah presents to us, God would, because the apostles were under the tutelage and guidance of the Messiah, so he moves down because that's who they are, God would hear them and work in tandem with their sharing the good news where mercy is shown to Jew and Gentile alike. So the context of 49.8 is messianic. Paul takes it and he assigns it to what God was now doing through them as apostles. And it's fascinating when he does it. So that's the main idea of the passage, verse 2, where Paul now writes, For, he says, that's what Paul says again, uh, For he says, who, the, who God is working with in tandem, I have heard thee in thy accepted time, and in the day of salvation I have succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now I think there's truth there because Paul knew now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. I can use that passage and it will be true. And God does hear us as apostles. So the application is possible and it's not wrong. He's not making it, uh, twisting it. But note that the last line that Paul assigns to him in his day, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It was truly applicable and fulfilled in Paul's life. Under the Messiah, God would show mercy in accepted time, is what Isaiah said. Um, that time, says Paul, has arrived. Okay? So not only has the Messiah come and done the work of propitiation for sin, um, but he has reconciled the world to God in his time, and God is willing to pardon and hear everything because the end of that time has come. And the doctrine in this verse that under the Messiah or in the time of Christ, God was willing to show mercy who are bringing forth fruits of repentance. That's what Isaiah meant. All right. So uh, at this point, verses 3 through 10, Paul now is going to bring us to something that I think is really, really useful uh, in my estimation. And that is, um, he's going to describe what he and the other apostles, servants with them, who are working in partnership with God, as he says in verse 1, to call people to Christ in the accepted time and what they were suffering, how they suffered it, and how they were seen. How, what they suffered, how they suffered it, and how they were seen. And I have made a chart on the whiteboard at the far left column there. We have, if, if, when we just read through it, you don't necessarily pick it up, but he distinctly uses these three main words before he gives us his laundry list. And so in the column on the left, Paul describes himself and the apostles. In the column at the right, uh, Paul has described how they were seen, but what the reality was. And in the middle, he describes how they were able to suffer those things and how they were able to be so uh, paradoxically seen in this way, but yet the truth be a different thing. So um, he says at verse three, which is summarized uh, 
giving no offense in anything, is what he says. That the ministry not be blamed. That's how he starts off describing him in the ministry. The word offense in Greek means not stumbling anybody that the ministry be not be blamed. That's how it starts off. So as ministers of the gospel, Paul says, they have not caused people to stumble over the gospel message or truths that they share. That's a better way to see it. I like that better than offense uh, that's used because it's too politically correct. And uh, in our day, uh, it's incorrect to say that Paul and his ministry did not offend people. It offended them so much he was put in prison, beaten with stripes and all the other things that, he, that has happened to him because he was offensive, because he shared the truth and he was straight up with them. So when we read offense, if we're giving no offense in anything and take that you know, hyperbolically, that's not what he meant. It means I have not stumbled anybody with anything that's going to cause them to not want the gospel in terms of truth. I haven't lived any way. I haven't said anything that have, have caused them to stumble. And I think what Paul is suggesting is that as a co-laborer with God in the ministry, he never gave reason to anybody um, that he represented the message that is suspect. Uh, he didn't give anything out that people would say, I'm not so sure about this thing you're preaching here, right, Paul? That he and his fellow laborers did it in such a way that the gospel could not be suspect. And this came by and through self-denial in a lot of ways with Paul. In fact, he was the one who said, I'm going to be a tent maker. And um, I will be a tent maker and I'll make tents. And uh, that way you can't even, the donations you make to the saints at Jerusalem and to other places, those aren't even suspect for me. I make my own living. You can't even say, criticize the ministry because I make my own living, you know. And, and I think that is really important at the stance he took. But we remember uh, things like that happening in his life. So he says that he did this so that the ministry be not be blamed. But the word ministry uh, appears more here in Paul's ministry. Um, well, I'll skip that. Now, we arrive at something kind of interesting in the scripture. And we have a hierarchy on display in how God reached the world then and then today. Um, you know, in the Old Testament, we have very, very scant, if any. We, don't, we have one reference, maybe two, of there being a father with a capital F. And those, and interestingly, Isaiah 9-6 takes that term father and assigns it to Jesus. The other one's in Daniel when they see someone in the fire. Oh no, uh, it's, it's another spot in Daniel. But... The point is, in the Old Testament, we have God. And he's working in and through Adam and, and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then uh, Joseph and then David and then the house of Israel, right? And then we have God in Christ working. And in that case, there's not too much by way of a direct description of the Lord and Savior. And what I mean by that is we have a lot of stories about him we have some things, but it's through the stories about him that we learn what he was like. Some things tell us, yeah, he didn't have a place to rest his head. 
And we can, that's a direct thing, but other things the stories tell us, and he forgave her. And we see Jesus sitting by the well, and he's taking time. We have to impute into those stories characteristics that are assigned to him as the Lord and Savior. And, um, and there's other pl- passages that talk about him being humble and, and, and love and kind, but we see it in his life, and then we have to extract his loving kindness out of the story that we read in the Gospels. Um, but when we get to his chosen apostles, who are the first human disciples of Christ, uh, we read what is possible for other humans. Hence the meat thing. And it's not possible for us to do everything Jesus did. It's just not. We don't walk on water. I don't care what people claim. It's tough for us to to even perform miracles of the slightest type that he did in his day that he was doing because he's the Lord and Savior. So when we read about him, he's setting the template on how to live the life. And, uh, but in the apostles who were fully human, and I know that we say Jesus was fully human, but he had God in him. We have people who are not one whit different than we are. Not in the least different than we are. And uh, we have a more detailed description of what they were able to do as followers of Christ in ministry than we really have of Christ. So I'm not trying to hold Paul up as anything because he was a man just like, just like me and human just like all of us. But in some sense, what we read about them has more application to the rest of our Christian lives than some of the stuff we read about Jesus. So I don't know how many of us could bear being on a cross, hanging there and asking uh, God to forgive people. You know, I'm just not, not sure, maybe. And then we would fail in other areas that Jesus succeeded in. So it seems like Paul knew and understood this. So while he's extremely self-effacing, toward his person before knowing Christ, we discover in him Pharisee of Pharisees, Jew of Jew, someone who killed Christians, by the way, who had to have been proud. We discover in him that it's possible to serve Jesus in an exemplary way. And the other apostles who showed the same thing. So I've taken the time to write 30 descriptions on the board that Paul represents of himself. These are from his own life. And they're not to make us, remember, look to Paul at anything, as anything, but a brother. But it might seem that um, we might see in Paul what Christ was able to do through him as someone who's committed to living the faith in that day. So in that first box, I've suggested that Paul was a worker together. Paul has said he's a worker together and partner with God in ministry. And we must see for ourselves as the same, that we are workers with him in ministry. And that when you embrace that call, you will have some of the similar things in our day and age happen with us. That's how I see it, at least. So in verse four, he says, first he says, I didn't, I didn't stumble anybody. And then he says in verse four, but in all things, approving ourselves as ministers of God. And then he starts in on the list. And he starts by saying, first, uh, in much patience, in much 
patience, the first thing he lists. And then he says, in afflictions and necessities in distresses. So this is the next thing Paul says about himself and others with him, is that they did nothing to stumble others in the faith, but in all things were approving themselves as ministers of God. And then he describes exactly what these ways were in approving themselves by saying in much patience, beginning this way. Now the interesting thing, at least to me, is, is that um, there's a model here. There's a formula here if you want. It's, it's actually like a formula that helps us understand. You pick. If you're going through much afflictions, here, here Paul tells us this is how he did it. He did it in these ways. This is what he brought into his life to help him get through these things that he suffered. And he does them in order. So by these things, he hasn't caused the ministry to stumble. I mean, in these things, he has suffered. By these things, he has not caused the ministry to suffer. And as a result, he is, they are seen as these things in their walk. So we're going to work through those together this week and the beginning of next week because it's fascinating. If you find yourself in stripes, for instance, and we'll discuss what that means, we probably aren't, then he says it's by kindness or by knowledge or by long-suffering or by pureness that he was able to get through those stripes. And that as a result of having done this, they're seen as deceivers, yet true. And he's seen as unknown in the world, yet known. All these paradoxical phrases he ends it with, that that's the result of going through this kind of thing, by this kind of thing, ends in people not really knowing how to see you. Some are going to see you as poor, and others will say, yet you're making others rich through what you've gone through. Some will see you as having nothing, and yet you will possess all things. It's a beautiful formula that's laid out here in the scripture. So, in partnership with God, no stumbling in ministry, in all things approving ourselves by the ministry of God, and then we have the in, by, and as. Okay, so uh, we have Paul representing us with three lists, and let's, work, let's take a minute and talk about the specifics of the list as he provides them. And he starts with, as I said, in much patience. To me, could be wrong, but I think everything in that category follows this line. So, in much patience, I would add, we have endured afflictions, necessities, distresses, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labors, watchings, and fastings. Till he changes and goes to the by. And he's going to add patience in the by category too, by the way. So, he's saying through much patience, and then he adds what they've gone through. And in other words, everything that Paul experiences in the inbox occurs in the confines of patience. And I got to tell you, oh my gosh, I, the Lord has worked through me. I am eight feet thick of solid concrete of impatience in my flesh. And he has, he has jackhammered through an eighth of an inch on me. He's gotten through some patience. It was not, it is not my natural thing. So it's so utterly difficult for some of us. We don't have the right makeup to be patient. I look at 
one of my daughters in particular, it's not in her flesh to be patient. A little bit, but not much. So it's so difficult for people who lack it to get along in the faith through society and the changes and civilization and its discontents, as Freud talked about. So it seems to me that all of our advances in life today, they have made patience so elusive, so much more difficult. Uh, and so, the, and it was, it's probably different today for us than it was in Paul's. Uh, we have so many advances, but they seem to have just taxed us more with our patience. And so I wonder if it was easier to be patient in an age when you had no technological advances and everybody knew it took four days to get to the next town by a mule. And maybe it was just, we have nothing else. But now we have expectations. And, uh, and so maybe it's more difficult today. I don't know. What we can say, however, is patience is a sure evidence of great chemical balance in you, THC, or the Holy Spirit. It's some combination of the three. I mean, that is a sign of God in you when you are more patient with things than you were in the past. It's a sign that he's working in you. And because I see patience as listed first, I just want to talk about it for a minute. The word, as I've studied it uh, this past few weeks, implies suffering. It implies suffering in every case. Enduring. It implies waiting. Long-suffering, of course. It's the suffering of the loss of something that you possess in the face of less deserving factors having it. And so my classic example is driving. I can manage quick lane changes, high speed, things like that. When someone in front of me cannot, they are infringing upon something that I have that they don't. And my patience goes because I want them to get out of the way so I can have my way and have more pleasure with me. And this is just one sign in my life. So the presence of patience automatically says, I will allow you to go first, to be first, to take something from me, my time, some, my peace, my luxury, whatever it is. And which in some way mirrors the Christian ethos of selflessness. And it is unbelievably taxing if you think about it, especially if you're not a patient per person by nature. Interestingly, patience is a virtue. It's not in the Bible anywhere. Someone, we came up with that. But all seekers of God do wait on the Lord. In fact, the Old Testament doesn't use the word patience except for once, and it's patiently. Instead, it uses a word that means in, Hebrew, in Psalm 40, verse 1, to wait. It's waiting. And that is at the core of the self, having to wait. So... If I'm in a long line at the store, I can exercise patience or I can start screaming at the clerk to do a better job. Uh, if I'm waiting on the Lord to bring and soothe my soul over something and he hasn't, 
I can go to false gods and idols and worship them and, and get solace. If, I'm, if I want the Lord to soothe my heart and he takes way too much time, I can go get d- blasted drunk, right? Because I'm not patient. I'm not willing to wait on the Lord. So in association with all the things that Paul describes there in terms of suffering, afflictions, necessities, distresses, stripes, all that stuff, he starts it off with, we bore all this patiently. We waited on the Lord to act. And, you know, I don't like to admit it, but I mean, it's key to the meaty Christian walk. And it develops itself. It envelops itself in Christ in us, you know. So it does, patience does occur in the Apocrypha. Um, it's used all over the Apocrypha. And, uh, but with it comes the, uh, in the New Testament apostolic record, endurance, endurance, continuance, steadfastness, often used in terms of patience. It's the same Greek word, steadfast. A long-suffering, suffer and suffering, all used interchangeably with the Greek word. So the Greek word translated patience in the apostolic record doesn't just mean suffering. Now i got to drop the real bomb on you. Okay? So if I'm suffering in traffic and someone's being an idiot and all I do is this. <laughs> I can hardly do it here. I can certainly do it on the road. Hupama noe. It, what it really means is cheerful endurance. <laughs> He's killing us, man. He's killing us. That's the point. It's cheerful endurance. We can all get our point across that we are being patient, can't we? I haven't said anything. I haven't said a word, right? But it's cheerful endurance is the true Greek meaning of the word hupomoma, who, whatever, right? So in relation to all Paul describes in below and on the box on the board or in the thing in the board, it seems that he is saying that he, in other words, in the midst of this stuff, happy, or maybe not happy, but cheerful with what's happening. Not with what, but in the face of what's happening. Submissive suffering kind endurance, pleasant long-suffering. Now we're talking the meaty Christian walk, all in that one word. Slays you, doesn't it? So if you think you've arrived in the walk, just start to look at this. And if this is a problem for you, you'll be slayed immediately. If it's not, you'll, you'll be slayed in a minute, right? So Paul is a joint worker with God in ministry, but he shows that he's been approved in much Patience. And then he adds, in afflictions. That's the next thing. Which I, again, believe he is saying that he has been patient in afflictions. And then he says, and we know what those mean. Just the afflictions of everything. And in necessities. So it's what the King James says. And there's a stronger term than afflictions. And it means in the want of immediate needs. So it's the... One form of patience uh, toward God when it's one form of patience if you don't have a retirement plan with God. It's one form of patience. It's another form of patience if you don't even have a job, right? So he, I believe, is talking about in afflictions and necessities. The afflictions are, in the Greek, I don't have a retirement plan. 
in the necessities, he's saying, I don't even have a job, if we're going to use that example. And uh, then he says, in distresses. So it's one thing to lack the 401k. It's another thing to lack the job. And it's another thing to not have food for your child for two days. So that it's kind of a descending or ascending order of suffering. We've been patient in afflictions, in necessities, and in distresses. And the Greek stands with us in saying he's turned the heat up in those three things, right? In the rest of the inside, Paul seems to be speaking of things that are referenced in the apostolic record itself. We can read about what he says next. So we have been patient in afflictions, necessities, distresses, general category here of general uh, difficulties. And then he says specific things that we can almost read about uh, in the New Testament. In stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labors, watchings, fastings. So he, he closes that chapter up, I mean, not that chapter, that list up, um, and says, in these things we've had patience. Now, in this book of 2 Corinthians 11, 23-25, stripes, Paul says that he was scourged five times by the Jews and has been thrice beaten with rods. So that's a total of eight times that someone took some form of an instrument and beat him. Ever been beaten by anybody? Well, I have. But <laughs> uh, he says, in imprisonments. And so we know Paul was in prison for a couple of years at least. We know that when it comes to his going to Rome. In tumults, which means it's a Greek word for to, toss to and fro. It's the Greek word for a stormy ocean. In tumults. And um, it means instability. He's been caught up in instability and disorder. And you know when we read the book of Acts that that was happening all the time. He goes, he goes to Jerusalem to speak, and he says one word, and suddenly the whole place goes berserk. I mean, he speaks to the Greeks about something. He says one word, and they go nuts, right? And you can find that Acts 18.6 at Philippi, Acts 16 at Lystra and Derby, Acts 14 at Ephesus, Acts 19. Everywhere he was go, he was experiencing tumults, right? In labors, referring in all probability to his incessant labors and duties of ministry, watchings, best means it means wakefulness. Watchings is what it says. So it sounds like he's watching on duty, watching, then he goes to sleep. But it means wakefulness, and it probably means no sleep. So he had little sleep, according to what the, that seems to be saying. And then in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, he says, and in fastings, and, uh, which probably refers to either frequent fasts that are of a religious type, uh, or he went without food, destitute of food. So those are the ends of Paul's ministerial life. This is how they served with much patience in, and the in precedes every one of those things. So if you're in ministry, you can assume that if it happened to Paul, some of those things will happen to you. Even if you're in ministry in your home on your neighbor and you do something, you can see somehow or another, you could have some afflictions, you could have some distresses, you could have some sleepless nights, whatever it is, right? So then he tells us how. This is the best part of it all, which I just love. He comes to, and it's the buys, not the hows, but it's the same thing. He says, by, ready, verse 6, 
by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right and on the left. That's what he says. In the first box, the sufferings and pretty good detail. And while he admits that he was patient in those things, he now says this is how. This, by these things we did it. And he says, by, we, this is how we did it with cheerful endurance. By these things. So if you are lost in life, if you're having a crisis of faith, if you're being broken down by the distresses of your walk, circumstances of your existence, this is how Paul tells us he did these things by pureness, long-suffering, knowledge, kindness, the Holy Spirit, love unfeigned, word of truth, power of God, armor of righteousness on the right and on the left, honor and dishonor, evil report and good report. These two, even though he says by before them, actually fit over here, I think, because he gives us that he had honor and dishonor, evil report and good report, and that fits more of the as's. But we have by in the translation I looked at, so... If you're struggling, that's his solution. He writes in Ephesians that the fruit of the Spirit is, and he gives us a laundry list. He says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against uh, spiritual powers in dark places, high places, right? You notice that Paul doesn't say in intelligence. He uses knowledge, but he doesn't use, he doesn't use book knowledge. He uses the knowledge of the word. He doesn't use arguing. He doesn't use um, uh, revenge. He doesn't use politics. He doesn't use by the power of the flesh, the arm of the flesh. He doesn't use by the other brethren gathering up together and going with him into fight. He uses nothing of the flesh on how he was able to endure those things. He uses all things that are of the spiritual nature. All things that are of a spiritual nature. And that is the way we have our victory. So... Let's talk about the first one, pureness. It's hagnotes, and it comes from clean and blameless, which comes from hagnos, which means modest and innocent, which comes from hagios, which you might recognize, which is our word for holy, holiness, hagios. Bottom line, Paul kept himself from the things of the world, and uh, that so easily pollute us. And I guess when we are polluted, it makes dealing with the stresses of life more difficult. That seems to be what he says. I, you can't get around it. That's what he says. And so the suffering listed above then were in direct relationship to his being able to cope to the first thing he says is his holy living, that he just did not participate in things that were going to corrupt him. It's describing consecration of your life, which comes through suffering and renders a person like Paul to be able to suggest that, that through pureness. He says it through holiness. He uses it. Now, you could say it's the holiness of Christ. Fine, because it always is, right? It's not the holiness of his flesh. And so he may be referring to that, I admit. So don't use this as I'm going to go and perfect my flesh. But nevertheless, he uses the word hagios, and that's the first thing there. Then he says by knowledge, and that's our final word for today, because we can't get through all this today. So knowledge, which um, 
There's a wide range of interpretations of what Paul means by knowledge here. Some suggest that he means personal prudence. Others suggest he means a knowledge of the law that he had as a Pharisee. And some think that Paul is suggesting by his sharing the knowledge of Christ with others helped him abide through suffering. Those three are the main things that I read different scholars and commentators suggest. And all of these could be true. We don't know which is correct. What we do know is that the Greek word gnosis is, and it means knowing something. So Paul says, by knowing. That's what he says. So he was able, through knowing things, to overcome those things. What did he know? Well, when I think of knowledge, you can think of a thousand things, but I think of what Christ said when he walked the earth. And it's, it's kind of, I repeat it a lot. But this is life eternal. To know the only true and living God and his son who he sent. That's life eternal, to know them. To, to know them, right? Paul knew them. And knowing them, he was able to walk his walk. That's what I think, right? So I believe that Paul, over the course of his ministry, grew daily in knowledge of God and Christ. And that allowed him to cheerfully endure. Just imagine for a second if you have a very sick child, which is a horrible thing to endure. And if you have a very, very, very sick child, and it looks like that child is not going to live on this earth much longer, but you know God and Christ intimately, like even like Paul did, who was trained by Christ in Sinai Desert for so long. You have that intimate knowledge. They're passing while painful to us here and missing them. It will be so much alleviated in those stresses with that knowledge than to not have it, in my estimation. And to know where that child has gone and into those loving arms and in that place that is so wonderful that, that you know, we can't describe it, stuff like that. So, um, it helped, the knowledge helps. And it's one reason that I sustain my faulty, weak flesh with knowledge of the word because without it, I think I would quickly dry up on the vine and become a prey to some of those things on that uh, left-hand column. Knowledge in and of itself, of course, can't save anyone. There's a lot of very, very knowledgeable people, and they have no idea who God and Christ are, and even knowledgeable in Scripture. So we can't get mixed up in that way. But when knowledge of God is gained by and through the Spirit, there's nothing more substantive in helping mature believers through their trials and their faith and helping us bear difficulties along the way. Three more quick ones, really quick. Uh, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's really interesting. The Holy Spirit, usually in lists in the Bible, they start with priority. He throws the Holy Spirit down in there in the middle. It's really interesting. Not saying that there's anything to it. This may have just been he's just doing a stream of consciousness and thought, oh, Holy Spirit, yeah. But... When he writes by long-suffering, this is a reiteration in my estimation of patience. When he writes kindness, it seems similar to cheerfulness, requisite based on patience. But kindness seems to implore gentleness, a gentleness with people, a kindness that comes along uh, in your struggle. When you can be kind when the world around you is falling apart, boy, that's Christ in us, right? And finally, 
buy, the final buy that Paul mentions, that I'll mention today is by the Holy Spirit. And I think we're going to pick it up next week and talk about by the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and what that looks like in our life to help us uh, get by these things in that left column. Comments, questions? Nothing? All right, nothing on the prayer list? Let's give it to God and get out of here. Lord, grateful for uh, your word. Thankful for the apostles who came forward and brought us the insights that we have to read from today. And of course, for your spirit, uh, which enables us to understand these things, which is made possible by the death and life and resurrection of your son. You loved us so much. You've given us all of these things. And while feeble, we try to understand them and grow. And we just pray that you'll be with us now as we exit from here that some of these things will sink in and enable us to walk this path as you would have us. We're weak in our flesh, and we know what we are. Uh, So do you. And so we just pray that you'll sustain us now as we exit here and be Christians this week, throughout this week, the people that we come in contact with. Sustain us with your love. Sustain us by faith. Sustain us with your uh, spirit. And that we can be used by you to show people your love for them. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is the camera off? No, the camera's off. Oh, camera's not off. Next week, uh, some of you know that we're going through and doing what's called the TVAR, Transversional Apostolic Record. And uh, I'm going to go through the New Testament three times, word by word, three times. The first pass through is to colorize it and give all the references that I can think of that are going to be beneficial to just a simple, clear understanding of what is being said and why. That first pass through of the Gospel of Mark is done. And we're going to have it available next week in hard copy for people who are willing to pay for it, one dollar. The reason is, is because we can't get it copyrighted unless part of it, because we can't, always can't get it copyrighted until the whole thing's done, but the attorney says we can get the whole thing copyrighted by getting part of it copyrighted if it is available to people for a price. If you don't have a dollar, ask Mary. She'll give you a dollar. Uh, but you need to buy it from us. So then I go to the attorney and he takes the gospel mark and he goes to the copyright office in Washington and we copyright that thing and then the whole thing will be copyrighted as we continue on. But more importantly, really, to me, is that if you take it, if you want one, you take it and you read it. 16 chapters and it gives you, the, it gives you how we're setting up the entire New Testament hereafter. And we'll talk about the, the book next week. Thank you, Earl, for reminding me of that. So next week, be prepared. That will come out, and we'll go from there. All right.